through him, meaning through Jesus, and everything was created for him. He existed before anything else, but yet somehow he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So here's another important sentence. Let this sink in. So he is what? Or at least he should be, right? So he, Jesus, is first in what? Everything. Everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Jesus and live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Jesus' blood on the cross. Now, in those five verses, Paul has covered everything from infinitely before creation up to Jesus' death on the cross. That's a lot of history in just a few verses. And I will be honest with you, I have struggled for years to try and understand God better. And I'm going to keep going down that road. I can honestly say I know God better today than I did a month ago and a year ago and 10 years ago, but I'm nowhere near done knowing all that I want to know about God and about Jesus. And there's just a few little sentences in here we want to pull out this morning. Um, Really what we're talking about, there's this huge word that I learned in Bible college that I didn't know before then, and that's what this passage talks about. It's this word incarnation. And we're not going to talk about it a long time. But there's this, this doctrine that we hold to be true, incarnation. Well, what, what in the world does that mean and what does that have to do with us? Incarnation simply means God became a human being. And that's really tricky for a lot of people to understand. And I'll be honest with you, I've got degrees in education and ordination. I've got lots of framed certificates collecting dust. And I'm still trying to fully wrap. How can God become a human being? But it happened. It happened. God became a human being. What does incarnation mean? Let me just pull two things out from this passage. How can we come to that conclusion? Well, Paul clues us in on this. First thing we see is in verse 15. It says, this is not in your notes. It's just some introductory thoughts. In verse 15, it says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. And then there's these next three words. He existed before anything was created. What? What does that mean? Here's what it means. If you put everything into one of two buckets, and it has to go in one or the other. It either goes into the bucket of something that was created or something that was never created. Now, that's hard to think about logically. But everything that you can see and touch, it was created, I believe, because the Bible teaches it, that it was created by God. However, in this verse, we see Jesus was never created. He just always was. So make no mistake about it, Jesus... At Christmas, there was a beginning, right? There's a beginning of Jesus taking a human form as a baby. But make no mistake about it, Jesus does not have a beginning. That was not Jesus' beginning. He has no beginning. He's beginningless. He was there before everything was created. The Bible also says he had a role in everything that was created. He said all things were created by him and for him. So there's this tricky concept we try and get our mind around. How can somebody who came as a baby never be created? God, Jesus stood before all creation. He himself was never created. But later on, we read he took on the form of a human being in order that he could live the life we should have lived and ultimately die the death we should have died so that today we can find new life 
the one that God always wanted for us to have. So there he was. You have to get this is extremely important. It says Jesus is supreme over all creation. Everything that was created, Jesus is over. Everything that was created was created through him, meaning that anything that has a beginning, anything that was ever created has a beginning in Jesus. He wasn't created. He's beginningless. He's the creator. That's part of the doctrine of the incarnation. The other part that we see here is is a couple of verses later where it says all the fullness of God resided or dwelled inside of Jesus. What in the world does that mean? Um, I don't know about you. I like pie charts and graphs. I love Microsoft Excel. I could spend hours just making spreadsheets. It drives my wife nuts. She doesn't care about the spreadsheets. I like a good spreadsheet. Makes a great grocery list. I can put my coupons in there. It's fantastic. Growing up, I had this idea that God was like a big pie chart, right? You know, so you got the big circle. And I guess the way that I imagined it was that there were three slices that comprised this pie chart and they were all the same size. There was a third of it that was God. That was God the Father. That was his part of the pie. There was another third that was Jesus the Son and that was his part of the pie. And there was another third that was the Holy Spirit and that was his heart, part of the pie. And somehow God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they were joined at the hip somehow in this big pie chart. This verse blows that all out of the water. Because here's what this verse says. All of the fullness of God, the Father, dwelled inside of Jesus. You know what that means? That means that every attribute of God, the Father, also is part of who Jesus is. So even though Jesus by himself is not the whole pie chart, what that means is all that is God is present in Jesus. I wish I could totally get my head around all that. I can't. The more that I think about it, steam comes out my ears. But I want you to understand this little baby that came to earth and the Jesus Christ that you and I call to. He's not just a third of God. All of the fullness of God dwells inside of Jesus. So that's the whole doctrine part of it. Now you all have like an associates of arts degree in Bible theology for the incarnation. But it's all well and good to talk about theology. But what does that really mean to you and me? What it means is that at Christmas, real God became real flesh, not a hologram. Not a ghost, not an image. He bled, he cried, he sweat, he ate, he lived. Our God became a human being. And that should change me and that should change you. But how do we come into so many Christmas services and walk out unchanged? Let me tell you how that happens. Christmas, the, the human body has this amazing ability to filter out things that are there as though they're not. Here's the way I illustrate that. I grew I spent my high school years in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. I graduated from Lampeter Strasburg High School. And so from grades 9 to 12, before I went to college, that's where we lived. Those of you that have been through Lancaster at certain times, where Lancaster has a smell to it. There are Amish barns everywhere. And I mean, they're everywhere. And we happened to live right across the street from, like literally right across the street, the other side of the street, were three big, huge Amish barns. And I will tell you, the first couple years that I lived there, there's just certain times when you just smell the barn. And it's just hanging in the air, that smell of animal, you know, stuff. And it's not a pleasant smell. It's not like Febreze and end dust. It's not like a nice thing. It's like a punch in the face that you didn't ask for. And, but I learned that over time, this amazing thing happened. I don't know how this happened, but my nose started tuning that smell out now i thought the the amish neighbors that we had just discovered you know febreze and air filters and all kinds of things like that until 
later on in college, when I started dating Kendra, who was my, you know, we were just dating at the time, I brought her home to meet my parents. And we were about 15 miles away from my house. And my wife goes, oh, my. What? what and, you know, I wanted to make sure she understood it wasn't me. <laughs> you know, like, no, you know, I did bathe this month, whether I needed it or not. And she's like, what is that terrible smell? I'm like, I don't, I don't smell it. You've got to be kidding me. What is that? And the closer we got to our house, the worse that it got. And even to this day, like over Thanksgiving, we were driving, we were driving towards my grandparents who live in Lancaster County. We were driving there for Thanksgiving. My wife goes, oh, that smell again. And I'm like, I just don't smell it. I just don't smell it anymore. And I don't know. There's a lot of medical professionals in the house. There's probably some really long name you studied hard to learn that explains what happens. All I'm trying to say is that there's this thing that we do as human beings that we have this ability to tune things out that are there. That's how some of you deal with just the abuse that you face in your life. It's still very much a real memory. It might even be going on. You just tune it out. Like sometimes we just tune out smells. Sometimes I can be, you know, like we're getting to the point where we start to tune out screaming and crying because it's just kind of, you know, it used to be like the first couple months Chase was around. Every time he screamed and cried, we were like, what's going on now? It's just like, just let him go. You know, just let him get it out. You know, whatever he needs to do. You just start tuning it out. Guys, if we're careful, that's what I think has happened to the Christmas story to a lot of us Christians. We've heard it so many times. We've seen how many different people's infants be baby Jesus and things. We've seen how many kids stand up and sing. Uh, those of you that have been in Trinity Life Network, we've seen Splendor of Christmas since the 1970s. There's, we get to the point where we just, we're not changed anymore. We just tune it out. Friends, I don't want that to happen this morning. If Jesus really came, and he was really God, and he was really born at Christmas, and there's three things I want to suggest to you that should change in all of us. If he was not a guru, not a wise man, not just a smart person, not a hologram, then goes, if it was really Jesus that took on the form of that took on the form of a man, he was fully God. There's three things that should change. They all start with the letter R. I'm going to just speak for a minute or two about each one. But there's three differences that Jesus should make. I want you to leave this service a little bit changed this morning. I want the smell and the sound and the reality of Christmas to come to your heart again today. Three things. Number one, a reordering. If Jesus is really who he says that he is and you really believe that he came at Christmas and he died for you and you want to have a relationship with him, there must be a reordering that takes place in my life and in yours. It says in this, in the passage we just read, Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He's the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. It says Jesus is supreme he should be first he is first in everything so if he was just here's the deal if jesus was just a philosopher if he was just a historic figure if he was just a really good speaker if he was just a benevolent missionary there's limits that jesus has over what he can expect from you and me if he was just a person he doesn't have a right to expect much from us however if jesus was god he has a right to everything so I don't know in your mind if Jesus is just some historic figure that you pull out when you need him or if he's really God. But if he's really God and he really is supreme and he really is first in everything, then there should be a reordering about all of our lives that hinges upon him being first, not third, not an addition, not a supplement but on him being first. Here's what that means. If Jesus is really God, then you and I can have no relationship with him and at the same time say there are some things that are just non-negotiable, Jesus. You can't have both. 
You cannot have relationship with someone who is supreme while you're still saying something I have is more supreme. There is no such word as supremer. I don't think that there is. I didn't Google that, so I'm hoping that there isn't, but it doesn't sound right. Here's the deal. You cannot have relationship with Jesus still, still say there's anything else that's more important. Any view, any conviction, any habit, any idea, any behavior, any relationship. If you want to have a relationship with Jesus and you want to have a relationship with the Supreme One, then Jesus has a right to change anything He wants. Now, He might not actually go and change it. But He can. If He so chooses to. You have to say, if you want relationship with Jesus, you have to say in everything, he must be supreme. He must be first. Imagine you have a really close friend of yours who has a terminal illness. You take them to the doctor. And you're sitting there in the room while the doctor is talking about their options. And the doctor says to your friend, I have a cure for you. I have, I have this packet of pills that if you take these pills, you'll be cured. You'll get a new lease on life. You get a second chance. It's all clean. One condition, you got to give up chocolate for the rest of your life. And your friend looks at the doctor, looks at the pills, looks at, looks at you, says, if I have to give up chocolate, then forget it. I'd rather, you know, I'd rather just go through with the disease. What would you say to your friend in that moment? He said, man, are you crazy? Give up the chocolate. Why would you want to hold on to your little, I mean, look, I love chocolate. I, I have an unhealthy relationship with chocolate. Chocolate has way too much of an ability to turn a bad day into a good day just with a little piece of... Look, I'm giving out Reese's Peanut Butter Cups next Sunday. They are really... I mean, they're as close to non-negotiable as you can get without being on the wrong side of non-negotiable. But doesn't it sound kind of silly for you to be there with a terminal illness, to be offered a clean slate, and you say, oh, no, chocolate's more important. I'd rather have my chocolate than to keep living. Let's bring that into our conversation this morning. I know people and you know people who say, I'm interested in Christianity. I'm missing something in my life. I've heard about Christianity. I'm interested in hearing about Jesus, but I've heard something. Maybe you can clear up. I've heard that if I become a Christian and I have a relationship with Jesus, I can't have sex until I get married. That's just an emotionally irrational statement to have and even inject in this entire conversation. If there's a God who offers you perfect freedom, and if there's a God who is the source of all beauty and all truth, and if there's a God to whom, if you know that God would result in all of his glory and all of his wisdom and all of his power transferring into you so that for endless ages you'd run and never get weary, you could walk and not faint, if this God would give you his love and his joy and his glory would double in you every day and every year and every month, and he would offer you life everlasting, if there's even a chance that he was God, how could you say, you know what, I'd rather just have sex when I want than have that doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense you cannot know the absolute if you absolutize anything else whether it's chocolate or sex or money or anything you can't know the supreme one if anything else is supreme you can't know the supreme one if you hold anything else supreme you can't really know that's what Christmas talks about. You can't have relationship with God if anything else is supreme, but the beautiful thing is if you put Him first, you can have relationship with the supreme one. You can have it. And it will turn your life right side up. It's amazing. It's amazing. 
You say, well, what do you mean, pastor, anything else, if anything else is supreme? I'll tell you, I've had people say, you know what, I, I follow Jesus, I go to church, I'm a Christian, and I have this thing, though, in my life. I've got this thing. I'm a Christian. I've got this thing. Now, some of my Christian friends say it's right. Some of my Christian friends say it's wrong. I don't really know what the Bible says or what they say, but I have this thing, and all I know is that I need it. I have to have it. I have to do it. can't give it up. It's my thing. All I know to tell you is that if you're talking like that and thinking like that, then something else in your life is supreme that's not Jesus. You cannot know the supreme one the way you really want to so long as anything else is supreme. It has, if Jesus is God, he can't just come into your life and round it out. He's not just rounding out your portfolio. He's not just the last coat of paint on the house that you've already built for yourself. He can't just supplement you. He can't just be your buddy. He can't just make you a little bit better. There's nothing in the middle. It's all or nothing. That's what Christmas means. You cannot know the absolute unless you relativize everything but your relationship with him. Here's what I want to say to God today. I'll give you supremacy in any area of my life. Anything your word says, anything your will touches, I will not hinder the supremacy of your will or your word. There's no place in my life that I'm going to point to and say, God, you can't touch that. That's what it means to be a Christian. There's nothing in the middle. Reordering. If Jesus is who we believe him to be and he did come the way Paul said that he came, then my life has to be reordered. Second thing it means is a life of relinquishment. Relinquish means to give up, to let go of. I know this doesn't sound real Christmassy yet. We'll get there, promise. In like six minutes, we'll be there. But if Christmas means the Son of God came to earth, then that means God became human. Think about that. If Christmas means... God came to earth. Think about the exchange and environments for just a moment. Where was he prior to the manger? Where was Jesus? Not a trick question, I promise. Where was he? Talk to me. Six of you know. Good. I'll let me fill in the rest of you. He was in heaven. Is heaven a nice place? Oh, I hope so. <laughs> Don't you hope so? Okay. I'm really working here this morning to make sure, you know, I know this is Baltimore and we're a little, you know, we're not going to give me a lot of interaction verbally, but there's just a few things I need to sleep at night to make sure at least you understand that heaven is a good place. You okay? We're there, right? Okay. He exchanges heaven for like a, a, a cow's doggy dish, sort of, so to speak. He goes right from heaven into the place where animals can go bite at his ankles because that's where they normally go for their food. Do you understand how just crazy that exchange is? I want to tell you something. If you want to know this, Jesus, it means a life of relinquishment. Let me drill down a little bit further. This is, you know, like Jesus went on this. In some ways, this was very much an adventure. You know what an adventure is? An adventure usually involves someone getting swept up out of really nice, comfortable, cozy circumstances and thrust into something filled with danger and peril. I've got to own up to something. There was a couple years ago when my wife was pregnant and she couldn't get out of bed. We got a TV to put in our bedroom that had a Wi-Fi built into it so we could stream Netflix so I could watch Survivor Man <laughs> and Man vs. Wild. And if you've never seen these shows, please leave the service right now and go home and watch. No, I'm just kidding. That's a joke. That's a joke. There are these, I guess I have to use air quotes, reality shows where there's these two guys that they just get, they, they intentionally put themselves in impossible, rugged situations with nothing but like a toothbrush and dental floss and a shoelace, and they survive for like a month on Mount Everest. And a film crew films it. 
I'm really exaggerating a little bit, but these shows are awesome. And I would remember laying in bed with my chips and my soda, all cuddled up and comfortable in the air conditioning, watching these guys try and survive the elements. And there was just this... And I remember thinking a million times, I would never in a million years go out with nothing for a week and film it by myself and live off of whatever twigs and bark and dirt that I could scrape up and talk to a camera about how I'm really feeling. But yet I didn't have any problem watching someone else put themselves through that kind of misery. And they called it an adventure. And I could not think for life of me, why? You know, and at some point, like Les Stroud is the name of the guy that's on Survivor Man. And some day, times, about four or five days, he'd be like, man, if I was only back at home right now, having fish with lemon butter. And I'm like, well, why don't you just go home? <laughs> Call the people on the radio, have them get you out of there and go home. Why would you voluntarily put yourself in that kind of a situation? I remember watching TV say, I would never do that. I would never voluntarily give up my comfortable king-size bed with my television and my chips and my soda to go live and eat out of the twigs and the brush with, with animals chasing me down. That's just not my idea of fun, though I will watch it regularly on television. <laughs> Christmas itself is the ultimate of adventures because you know what? Nobody left more security than Jesus left. Nobody on this earth, not you, not me, have been put into more danger and peril than what Jesus modeled for us when he left heaven and came to earth and got placed in a manger. Nobody. Nobody left more safety than Jesus left. Nobody ever faced the perils Jesus faced. Nobody ever walked into the fire that Jesus walked into. Nobody ever braved the storms he braved. Nobody, ever, nobody else ever had the jaws come smashing shut on him just like Jesus did. He faced all of the justice of God for sin coming down on him. He paid the penalty. So what does this mean for us practically? It's interesting because Christmas probably has become the opposite of what it initially intended. Let me justify that for just a second. Christmas is all about coziness, man. It's all about, you know, chestnuts roasting on an open fire, all that good stuff, right? Chestnuts, the fire, the stockings. It's almost like you feel like you haven't had Christmas until you've slowed down and had your hot chocolate or nowadays your Starbucks peppermint milk or whatever it is that you carry around. We look for comfort and coziness around the holidays. Like for me, it is like the day after Thanksgiving, the Tony Bennett Christmas album goes on and I'm having Christmas. It's all about comfort. It's all about coziness. That's what we're looking for. And not that it's a bad thing. I like comfort and I like coziness. It's almost like we feel like I have to find a fireplace. I have to find chestnuts roasting. I have to find, you know, you know, the Yuletide carols being sung by the choir and tater tots and Eskimos. I forget the words, but, you know, the whole rest of the Christmas. It's like we have to find that or I haven't had Christmas. Do you know what the manger means? The manger is the exact opposite of coziness. The manger means cow dung instead of goose down feather pillows. It means rejection. It means Jesus was willing to leave the safe, leave the secure, and for some great mission and some great quest, he was willing to let all of that go in heaven and come here to earth. You know what it means to be a Christian? And you know what Christmas means? A Christian who is burning with the flame of the spirit of Christmas says, the last thing I want is a nice, safe, little, comfortable life. Reaching my financial goals, keeping my figure past 50, and having the home of my dreams. True Christianity and the true spirit of Christmas isn't, I want to protect my nice little life. You can't look at the story of Christmas and embody that. A Christian who really understands Christmas says, give me some great thing to do and I will give up anything to do it. 
Don't you see? It's the exact opposite of what our postcards say. It's a Christian says, look at what Jesus did for me, and I want my life to count. I want to make a difference. I want to change lives. I want to change the world. And I expect that if I want to do that, I'm going to have to give some things up. There are so many Christians who want to do great things for God without giving up anything. You want to change your workplace. You want to change your home. You want to change your life. You just don't want to change. You don't want to relinquish anything. I can honestly stand before you and say, I absolutely want to do great things for God and I expect it will cost me more than I imagined. How do you deal with that, Pastor? Because I look at what my Savior gave up for me. It didn't start, it didn't begin at the cross. It began the moment he said, I'll give up coziness of heaven. I will relinquish all that and come and take on the form of a human being. No one will ever give up more than what Jesus gave up. That's what Christmas means. That's what it means. It means a reordering, reordering. It means a relinquishment. But finally, it also means a life of rejoicing. It means a life of rejoicing. Because I know you're thinking, hey, this is a Christmas service, Pastor. Where's the, where's the inspiration? Where's the happiness? Here we are. We're at that point. If this little baby is God, if God became human, it leads to a life of reordering and relinquishment. But it will also lead to a life of rejoicing. Here's what Colossians 1 says again in verses 19 and 20. It says, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Jesus. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. And Paul, in that one kind of long sentence, and Paul has some really long sentences, but in this one long sentence, he covers everything from Jesus coming to heaven to him ending his completing his work uh, of salvation on, on the cross and defeating death. How in the world did Jesus face all of that stuff on his darkest, loneliest days when people abandoned him? When this little baby grew up and became a 33 year old, strong, grown carpenter man how did he face the betrayal of his closest friends and the physical and emotional trauma and abuse and 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 having to go through his darkest time completely alone bereft of any human contact how did he get through all of that how did he do it and if and and if we can figure that out that gives hope for us because how do we get through the things that maybe aren't to scale but in our own lives feel the same way we read about it in hebrews chapter 12 let me read it to you it says we do this Here's our plug and play part. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith because of the joy that was waiting for him. He endured the cross and disregarded its shame. Now he's seated in the place of honor besides God, beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility Jesus endured from sinful people. Then you won't be weary and give up, says the Bible. Think about what he went through and how he got through it. He thought about the joy that was waiting for him on the other side of his troubles. Friends, I've got troubles and you've got troubles. And right now, your troubles might seem very small, almost invisible. You might be in good season for others of us in this room. Our troubles are eating our lunch right now. They are driving our schedule. They are occupying our mind. How do I get through it? There's no simple answer. I do not want to trivialize what you're going through right now with some pat little simple answer that won't work for you. What I can tell you this is that Jesus is not, he is not unable to sympathize with what you're walking through right now. He chose to give up the coziness to walk through where you're walking through. But you know what got him through? He thought about the joy that was waiting for him on the other side of it. He said for the joy that was waiting for him, he endured the cross and despised its shame. So when you are worn down, he's, the Bible says, when you're worn down, 
Think of all the hostility that Jesus endured from sinful people and then you won't be weary and you won't give up because today, where is he? He's enjoying the joy of his father. He disregarded the cross. You know what that means? It means means that there's no self-pity. It says he made it light. He says, okay, here's the cross, but the cross is nothing compared to joy. Christmas means the end of feeling sorry for ourselves. Christmas means the end of self-pity. Look what Jesus endured because of the joy that was waiting for him. There's a joy that awaits you too. There's a joy waiting for each and every one of you and for me too. So as a Christian, we don't want to go around and say, look at my sacrifices. Look at how bad things are. Like, I, I, I got in trouble in a church once by being too blunt with what I'm about to say. Um, I, I, I got tired of, I, I had this club I called the Oh Yeah Well Club. Oh Yeah Well Club. Because there's just this group of people I tried to avoid on Sundays at the church that I was a staff pastor at, at the time. Who Every time you walk by them, if you, it was just like, every sentence started with, oh yeah, well. And you walk by and you hear a conversation. Well, I'm here by the grace of God this morning. Woke up feeling my back sore. Oh yeah, well, earlier this week my back was really sore too. Had to stay home all week about it. Oh, yeah, well, earlier this week, I had a car accident again. Oh, yeah, well, my car's been in the shop. And it's just, oh, yeah, it's like we're trying to one-up each other with our (laughs) boo-boos. No, I know none of you are in the oh, yeah, well club. (laughs) But can I just suggest to you, Christianity is not a life filled with going around and trying to get pity for how bad things are. Please, we do not need that type of publicity for Jesus. We do not need people going around in the name of Jesus talking about how lousy things are. I had someone who told me one time, if you really are saved, would you please inform your face? (laughs) All right, back to my default face. But (laughs) we laugh, but don't you think there's something a little bit true underneath all of that? Why do we need to be the grumpiest people around? Man, you can walk into Starbucks and see people eat, drinking triple espressos who somehow are still upset. <laughs> I want to be around people who have discovered a well of joy that is attractive to me. I want to be around people who know the Savior like I do, who might not always be happy but can always find joy. Yeah, there might be the cross that you're bearing today, but you know what? There's joy on the other side of that for you. Sorrow lasts for the night, but joy comes in the morning. If you believe that, inform your face. It gets better. It gets better. What kind of message of hope is it to say, hey, come and get saved and be as miserable as we are? (laughs) Whole bunch of Eeyores walking around church. I am on a campaign to stomp that out. And I get in trouble for that sometimes. People say, well, you've been in Atlanta far too long. Look, man, you know, Atlanta does not hold the market on people being happy when they come to church. I don't care what part of the world that we're in, what our region says, what the social norms are. There is a joy that is available. And it's one of the litmus tests to know whether I have discovered Jesus or not. If you're not living with that sense of fullness of joy, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not saved. It just means you don't know the Supreme One as much as you think you do. There is joy available. Jesus found it. And even when he went to the cross, there was still joy in his heart because he was waiting for the joy that God was going to give him. So what does Christmas mean? Why did he, came as a ba- Why did he come as a baby? Where do we get access to that? It's here 
It's here in this passage. He says Jesus did all that to reconcile the world to himself. That's the joy. Essentially, what we see at Christmas is God saying, I'm going to give you me in a package you can hold in your arms. All of me is available to anybody who wants it, and you can hold it right there, right there in your arms. Friend, that's what it's about. If you really know the Jesus of Christmas, if you know the Jesus who didn't die on the cross and stay buried, if you know the Jesus who's resurrected from the dead and alive today, God is essentially saying to you, if you give up your life for me, if you'll come to me, if you'll give me supremacy in every area of your life, if you relinquish everything for me and you enter into my quest, you get me in your arms. I'm going to give you all of me for all of you. There is nothing greater than that. Amen? Amen. I'm going to invite our worship team to come as I just close us with a word of prayer. And I want you guys just to, if you would, just play that last song, the Revelation song, the song that, uh, that Tara led. We're going to use that as our benediction today. This week, we're not going to have a, just as I was praying, you know, about how to close the surface. Some weeks, you know, we, we sing a worship song in the end. We have the prayer team come. We pray together. And I will tell you that after we dismiss, if you really want someone just to, to lock in and pray with you, man, I'll stay right here. Just come down. I'll pray with you. I'll stay as long as I need to. But I want us to just end in a time of just commitment and worship again. I don't want us to go out of here unchanged by the Christmas story today because what happens is when you invite, open up the altars and you invite people to come to pray, some people come, some people don't, and some people, I want us all to answer to some type of call to God today. For those of us who came in today on top of things and feeling close to Jesus, that's how I felt. I'm putting things back on the table. God, if there's anything I need to reorder, if there's anything I need to relinquish, it's yours. But God, I also don't want to just put on some type of a phony face. I want to experience all of the joy that there is in Jesus so that I can live a life of rejoicing because I believe that's a magnet that's going to draw people to Jesus. But most importantly, friend, you might be here today and say, I don't know. I don't know the Supreme One yet. I don't know Jesus the way that you talked about. Friend, that can end right in this moment. You know enough about him right now to have relationship with him. And all that you have to do is in your heart say, I believe that God exists. Believe that he has a son named Jesus. Believe that Jesus did come and take on the form of a, of, of a baby. He grew up and he lived the life I should have lived. He died the death I should have died. And he rose from the dead. He's alive today. And I want relationship with him. And I recognize that that means he must be first. That's what you have to believe in your heart. And if you want to take that next step, you just make a simple prayer. In fact, we're all going to bow our heads. We're all going to close, close our eyes right now. I know in my heart there's a number of you here this morning you don't know Jesus. He's knocking on the door of your heart today. He wants to give you all of Him. He wants to give you a new identity. He wants to give you a new passion for living. He wants to start talking to you about the plan that He has scripted for your future. And guess what? He says in his words, you're going to like it. It's going to fill you with hope and it's not going to hurt you and it's not going to destroy you. He wants to share all those things with you. And the reason he hasn't is because there's no point in him talking to you about those things if there's not a relationship there first. Here's how you begin that relationship. You pray a simple prayer like this. Jesus, please forgive me of my sins. I don't want to be first anymore. Up to this point in life, I've been first. I've done life as I thought best. But I recognize today that you're the supreme one. And I want relationship with you. Please forgive me. Come into my heart. Change me. And I will follow you from this day forward. That's all you have to pray, my friend. That's all you have to pray. Now, with every head up and every eye open, 
I want us to stand to our feet right now as a campus. I want us to lock in on God for just a few more moments. I want us to not leave this moment until we have had a moment to say, God, once again, reorder my life. Show me if there's things I need to let go of and fill me with joy that I might be able to really enter this season with rejoicing. We're going to sing a song again that we sang earlier, so it should be familiar, about how holy, holy, holy our God is. Let's just offer our lives to Him as an act of worship. 